1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from my fabulous friends. Hey everybody, it's Adrian. And if you're listening to this silky, silky smooth voice, you know what it is. You got yourself another episode of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids Podcast. Hello everyone. For those of you just now joining, would like to welcome you back. This is the second episode in the month of September. Uh, the last episode was pretty significant. It was kind of my uh, first episode back and it was a great time. I was really fortunate to be able to chat with my friend, Janice Legata. You know, I just love her so much. I'm so appreciative of her. And I'm really appreciative of, you know, the overwhelming kind of feelings of support that I got from all of you bad apples. So it really got me in my feels. I'm so thankful for you all. Uh, and I'm just really, really happy to be back at it, back doing the thing. Um, trying to think a couple updates with me. You know, I realized I didn't mention this and most people don't care, but you know, it's important to me. Uh, so I'm going to talk about it and, uh, I'm sure you'll, it'll matter to you too. Uh, listen, people, I got Invisalign. I got Invisalign and, uh, don't know if I love it. Don't know if I love it. I am a little bit lispy. I've had braces in the past, so I'm used to lisp, but still, you know, it's not kind of my favorite experience, a little lispy. Uh, every couple of weeks I have to put in a new set of trays and like they are just tight as fuck. I have to, there's a lot of upkeep wearing Invisalign. You know, there's a lot of high maintenance. You have to basically keep your braces, your, your trays as they call them, you have to keep them in for 20 hours a day. So I sleep with them in, I have to pop them out just to eat and even then, I can't just dilly dally because, you know, you only have so many available, you know, tray free minutes at your disposal. So I'm like eating dinner. And as soon as I'm done, I'm pretty much got to put it, pop them back in. And then to put them back in, it is no simple feat. It's not like a one second. Let me just throw these bad boys back in. No, you have to like floss and brush and water pick and clean the braces. Uh, so what you know, it has been a process of getting used to it. I'm used to like eating lunch, scarfing my lunch down. And then I like essentially, if I am running to a meeting, I just, all I need is what, a couple minutes to get to my meeting. Now it's like, I need, like, I'm going to need about 20 minutes. I need about 20 minutes before I'm in any place uh, to be productive or to actually have a conversation with anyone. So let's just say it's been a process. Um, Alyssa has said, she was wanting to get kind of some orthodontry, orthodontry, some braces. Um, but just based on how much I have suffered for the gospel wearing these Invisalign, 
she's like, you know, I might just stick to the brackets, you know, keep a classic, classic brave space moment. Uh, so anyway, uh, th- this has been an update and an Adrian's dental process. It's been great. It's been great. Listen, speaking of a great process, I had a great conversation. I was in, uh, I was very fortunate enough to connect with a friend of the show and a friend of mine. I had a conversation with Phil Drysdale. Um, if that name rings a bell, it's because I've had the opportunity to be a guest on Phil's show on more than one occasion, twice, in fact. Um, and I was like, you know what? Let me bring Phil on. He was a pleasure to speak to. He had so much insightful, like it was so insightful, the things that he was saying. And it was stuff that certainly I, I it, it was familiar. He was talking about things of people who go through a faith change. You call it deconstruction, whatever term you want to use. He, talk, he talked about all these things and some trends he saw. But the coolest thing to me was that Phil is a researcher of deconstruction data. And I think that's something that is <laughs> certainly outside my wheelhouse. I'm like, let me just be anecdotal and ridiculous. But to speak to someone like Phil, who he has a network called the Deconstruction Network, and he does a ton of work in, in that space. And he's been a podcaster for years. He's done so much work in this area. Um, but then the fact that he's actually done the research to like really do like get some good numbers and kind of informs so much of these conversations. So we dug into that. We spent a majority of our time just talking about his story and then talking about all things like deconstruction data. Um, I, I thought it was just a an illuminating conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. And I figured, you know what, what better way to jump back into the mix than with the one and only Phil Drysdale. So um, definitely check this out. I think you all are going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did. As always, right, with episodes like these, we are talking to people who are sharing their own story. And sometimes those stories of religious experience or interaction with religious spaces can kind of drum up some shit you know, in your own, it certainly did for me. It was like, oh man, I, I was almost was forgetting some of these aspects of my own story that aligned with Phil's experience. And sometimes that's great. Sometimes we love to listen to stories like this because it helps provide solidarity and it allows us to kind of really feel seen uh, and and find some commonality with other people. And sometimes you're like, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I don't really love hearing other people's experience because it's still a little bit too fresh. So if that's you, I I get it. That's totally fine. By all means, feel free to skip ahead to the next section of this show. There'll be some timestamps in the show notes or skip the episode altogether. I totally get it. If you would like to stick around, I think you are absolutely in for a treat. So check it out. This is my conversation with Phil Drysdale. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. My next guest is a podcaster. 
YouTuber, and community organizer. He's the founder of the Deconstruction Network, a global database of people in the process of a faith deconstruction where they can process and connect with others in a similar framework. His research on this topic has been really illuminating and interesting to check out. And he is also the host of a podcast bearing his very name. So let's give it up for the one and only Phil Drysdale. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey. I'm glad we were able to do this. Yeah, I'm super stoked. I'm, I'm really excited. It's been a while since we've chatted. So I know. I've, I, I've known you for probably going on maybe three years now. You have had, uh, I've been on your show. Yeah. A and I've just times, been right? an asshole. Yeah, at least, uh, I think twice. Yeah. And I just haven't even, I've been too cool to bring you on. Really, what an asshole. To be fair, bro. I think I plow through. I mean, I go through, I got ADHD. So sometimes I do like, I don't know, like it feels like about 20 podcasts a month. And then other times I just do nothing for six months. So people have to roll with my craziness. But I think when I've had you on, like I've been in seasons where I was putting out two shows a week. There were three hour long episodes and I was just plowing out episodes. So I've, wow. I've probably got a few more episodes, which naturally leads to having a lot more guests. So uh, and you guys, you never used to do guests every episode either, right? You did like alternate ones. Correct. So there's not many guests a year. No, it's like 12, 12 guests a year, you know, so I got to be really selective and, you know, Phil, you've been selected. I am, man. <laughs> I'm way too white to be selected anywhere near the beginning. Let's be honest that, that I will say we would, yes, we would all be looking on and judging the Dirty Rotten Church kids <laughs> if they had had me on early on. Um, I mean, it's true. It's funny you say that. Like, I really have always wanted to be really deliberate with the guests we have on the show. And I think like historically, right? I come from like the, you know, cishet man perspective. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of that, especially in the podcast world. Yeah. And so to go into like the deconstruction, post-evangelical kind of faith change conversation, I was like, you know what? If, if I'm going to pull in a guest, like, let me not mm -hmm. have it be predominantly that same context. <laughs> Please. Like, seriously, yes. 100%. That said, we got a white man on the podcast. Let's go. Here I am, guys. I've been storing it up for years. <laughs> <laughs> it's your turn. It's your yeah. turn, Phil. No, Philly, I'm really... the white guys get something to say. <laughs> yeah, I know. Y'all have had it too difficult. It's, in it's your been life tough. For too it's long. Been, you know, joking aside, I've just been with my uh, my wife's family, and uh, that's the conversation with them. So you know, the, how hard it is for them is um, poor, poor, disadvantaged, white, straight, evangelical. You know, oh, homophobic, racist. You know, they fill in the gap. But, uh, you know, so hard oh, for those people. <laughs> I know, Just, I know. They're kind of so difficult. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, yeah. Phil, thank you for this. I know it is. You said it's like midnight your time. Is no, right? not yet. It's, it's it's actually really early. This is like about as early as I usually do when I talk to Americans. Um, so it's about oh. just after nine nine p.m. So often I'm starting oh, podcasts man. at like one a.m. So this is a breath of fresh air. Um, I mean, it's if it if it's good for you, it's good for me. Perfect. You know, I you know. But right before dinner time, this is perfect. And uh, Phil, where in the, for those who don't know, where in the world are you? So I'm currently in England, Manchester. So my wife Got and I are it. about to move back to Scotland, which is where I'm from. But yeah, England. When are you moving to Scot back to Scotland? Uh, I don't know, man. It's weird. It's like we've, we've settled up most of the stuff down here, but we have to move up. But there's all sorts of legal stuff with the way houses work in England versus Scotland. They're different and it's kind of complex. And we're also like pregnant and like I'm in a huge shift in my job. So it's just loads up in the air. So 
I don't know, maybe two weeks, maybe eight weeks, somewhere in that window. And I've done no packing no and we don't know. <laughs> and we've nowhere to move it. to either. We might be moving into just becoming homeless. So Yay. it's kind of crazy well, time. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Well, congratulations, first of all, Thank on you. the pregnancy, not to you because you are useless no, in this whole situation, yeah. but congrats to uh, you and your family. Um, but yeah, moving sucks in general, moving mm -hmm. sucks and moving without like, like if, very quickly yeah sucks even more yeah we have to move twice you know? so we move into a rental mm. and then we can move into somewhere that we're going to be more stable so yeah Oof. moving twice while either fully pregnant or with a few weeks old child could be fun man <laughs> tnps this is life you, right Phil. yeah sending my, my tnps thoughts and prayers i um so with these conversations you know how it goes i always want to start off with the big question are you a church kid and if so what did that look like for you in your framework? Do you mind if we talk about that for a bit? Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in the UK, so already immediately a very different world um, than a lot of uh, your listeners. I know you've got a very global audience, but I know a huge portion of the deconstruction space is very American. Um, so I grew up as a Baptist pastor's kid, but I say, I say that with that introduction about the UK in that Baptist means very different things to different people. So most people in America hear the word Baptist and they think, oh, like... Baptist, right? We know what Baptist means in America. Right, for the most Baptist. Part, right? That's sure. that's the first association. There's actually so many different types of Baptists anyway. But but in the UK and, and across the world, Baptist can mean a huge variety of things. Like my dad was a charismatic, for example, you know, and that's normal in Baptist church um throughout the world. And so not normal in the American Baptist church as much. Um and so very different experience. So I just say that in that I grew up a Baptist pastor's kids, that does not mean I grew up uh what most people would imagine a Baptist kid kids to be like um but generally a pastor's kids you know my uh um my dad's like i don't know dragging us to church every week we spend most of our waking hours in a church somewhere while they're running a service we're running around under the pews and you know whatever um the youth group was basically me and my family <laughs> like it was uh, most of the churches we were part of were like basically a hundred percent people over the age of 70 um and so or at least it felt like that when you were like 10 um so huh. it just felt like i don't know like it didn't feel very uh real to me it didn't feel very meaningful to me it only kind of um around the age of 15 16 i really bought in i went like a hundred percent guns we moved to a new location and my dad joined this church that had like a hundred youth kids and like a hundred people in any church in the uk is a big church like we don't do big churches like America, right? I mean, maybe a few like the Hillsong London or, you know, a few, there's a couple of mega churches here or there, but like a hundred, 200 person church is a really thriving church in the UK. Um, and so a church with a hundred youth kids was just game changing. Suddenly I was like, whoa, people my age are into this shit. Um, and so I, I got into it and I got into it hard. Like I, I'm autistic, I'm ADHD, I hyperfixate. I got into it big time like i threw myself in it i spent every waking moment in youth groups and bible studies and home group things all sorts of different stuff i read the bible all day i was praying non-stop um i was really into it became a youth leader um ended up getting very involved with leadership in the church ultimately ended up giving away everything i owned and moved to america to join a bible school um gave everything into that for years um you know uh, i volunteered for the church it was a huge mega church um, then I started traveling around the world and speaking all over the world as, as a Christian speaker, author, podcaster. I actually was number one podcast uh, for about four months under Christianity 
as a whole. I bumped Joseph Prince and Joel Osteen down to two and three. That's good. Um, that was in like 2012, 2013. And I was like, I was into it, man. I was like, you could not say, like so many people say, right? That I was kind of this uh, lukewarm, never really believed, you know, whatever. Yeah. I was like, it's funny that you're like, I never really believed or I didn't really understand because last week I was teaching you. Right? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's, it's an interesting position you're taking there. So, I mean, when you're traveling and speaking everywhere and people asking you questions, you're, you're constantly questioning for yourself. Do, what do I, do I really believe that? Like people are coming up and asking these questions and, you know, they're coming up afterwards for prayer, but it's not really for prayer, right? It's just that you're the anonymous guy that yeah. they're never going to see again. And you're not going to rat them out to the pastor or their friends if they go, do you really believe in hell? Or hmm. it, what? what's the deal with Jesus dying and rising? Does that really happen? Or, you know, these crazy big questions that, you know, most people don't ask, or certainly we don't know that people ask them because we don't talk about that here. Um, and so the whole time I was in this space, I was constantly questioning, constantly asking um, questions. And so I went through my own process of deconstruction while traveling and speaking and doing Q and A's and having a podcast and all that. Um, but what I found over time is that, um, you know, you like we talked at the beginning, right? I mean, never mind white guys, but just the opinionated people that know everything are not in shortage in the church, right? I mean, there's not, <laughs> if you have a question in the church and you're going to like, you know, play between certain goalposts, there's no shortage of people that will come alongside and help you. And they'll be your accountability buddy. They'll be your mentor. They'll, you know, help you along the way. Um, and I started to really question, do we need another me? Do we, do we need this? Like, what is this that I'm doing? Like, there's loads of people doing this. And I don't even believe half of the stuff I'm doing. I, I never actually ever taught anything I didn't believe, but I, I had to get very creative with how I taught and what I said and walking between lines. Or I do a talk on maybe like the different views on hell. And then I go, well, just you guys think about what you believe. And that was enough to never get invited back or, you know, things uh -huh, like that. Interesting. Um, which only opened up the door even more for people asking me questions and coming up to me and going, hey, I'm not really sure what I believe. Like, you know, what is there out there from people like me? And mm. back then, God, there was like maybe, maybe like someone like Rob Bell or, you know, like it didn't feel like there was a load of people, you know, maybe if you were going to stay within the Christian faith, you could look at some sort of progressive stuff like Brian McLaren or people, but there wasn't like a huge online community of people that were processing this. It felt like certainly not easily accessible or easy to find. And so I kind of came to this place where I was like, there's a real need for people to just have someone to talk to, just a safe person to chat with. And so I kind of stopped traveling. Um, and I just sat online and started talking to people. And um, that's what I've been doing for God, 12 years, 10 years. Something like that. I've just been sitting, chatting with people and giving them space to process and not offering answers. I don't talk about my own journey beyond that point. I don't talk about where I'm at because um, I think there's plenty of space for that. But most people that are going through this process of coming out of a real fundamental space where they've looked to authority figures for answers and the, the general... Um, response to that is you come out of that and you immediately look for a new authority figure to latch onto and go, what do you believe? And what can I believe that's just the same and feel some safety, certainty, and security. Um, so I try and avoid that and go, no, no, you're not passing the buck. You, you need to do this work. You need to start building autonomy. You need to figure out that you're your authority and what do you believe? Um, yeah. And so, I mean, from that, I, I developed the deconstruction network, helping people connect with people in their local space. Um, uh, so free resource, you can go online and put in like 
Austin, Texas or whatever and suddenly see, oh, wow, there's like 25 people in Austin, Texas on this website and I can message them and we can then go for a pint or something. Um, and it's weird. Like I've had messages from people in like Chile or like Romania saying, hey, I met with someone or someone in the Philippines recently. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. So, I mean, there's places, people all over the place. It's very, it's very English speaking focused predominantly. So, um, but yeah, there's people all over the place in that. It's cool. And through that, I started to really do some work in research. So research is kind of my passion. I love data. I love, um, I love refining complex things into simple uh, things. And one of the most frustrating things in this space is seeing misinformation getting thrown everywhere, um, both by people uh, within the community that don't really fully understand the broader community. They just understand their own bubble because they've gone through something and they've generalized that as what everyone must have gone through or through the kind of misinformation propaganda machine that is everyone that has power and still has a microphone telling everyone why people that deconstruct are X, Y, Z and can we talk about that? that. Yeah. Oh, can yeah, we go, absolutely. Can, can, we, can we rabbit trick? Because you said so many things that are fascinating. First of all, I Sorry, can't imagine. I ramble, so no, I love to it. interrupt. No, no, no. <laughs> this is this is good. I want to I want to cram as much in as possible, just because I think you have so much cool shit to say. So, um, first of all, I can only imagine uh, you being what a professional, if not a semi-professional Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, what that must have been like to undergo a faith change, like while you were kind of you know, bringing home the bacon, doing so. Um, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. Like, so how did you feel in that process? Like what was going on in like internally when you were unraveling everything? Um, you know, it was, it was, I, I think I've always constantly been changing and constantly been evolving. Uh, you know, my mom brought me up and one of the first things she started, I remember her teaching me was question everything. Even if I tell you it, no one in authority knows more than you do necessarily question wow. it. Um, and so that was quite rare growing up in a church with that as being one of your kind of authority figures telling you, um, that kind of message. Um, so I've always questioned, I've always kind of like took a hammer to anything and hit it until it was beaten to bits and gone, what's there left, you know, oh, this will stand good. Um, so I think I was quite used to a constant change and ebb and flow and the way I operated my Christian ministry right from the beginning, I hated the whole, I came from a very charismatic mega church world and I, I, I did not take any income from anyone. I never charged an honorarium. I never charged for travel, for speaking, anything. I just literally said, hey, if you can afford to give, give, but I'm going to try and cover everything for free Um, anyway. And so I didn't really have, I was living entirely off donations, but I was basically scraping by. I I could live on nothing. And I preferred that model than, you know, I had people that were mentoring me going, oh, you need to just set a set fee of like five grand to go there for a weekend and they'll pay it. And I'm like, I know they will, but that feels uncomfortable. And I don't huh. like being tied to them in that way. And also I don't really like the whole system. Um, so I, I was kind of at the mercy of that whole world in, a, in, a, in one way, but actually it was really freeing because probably for the last, I'd say 14 years, I haven't made more than about maybe on my best year, about $18,000 a year. So huh. I could at any point get up and go to a supermarket and get a job that would basically pay about that. I live in the UK, so we actually have minimum wage and you know <laughs> some, some you know we have welfare, basic and, uh, living standards, you know, yeah, yeah, basic stuff. Um, I get holidays and you know just little things, you know. <laughs> Sorry to know burn all the Americans. This is, this is so weird. What are you referring to? <laughs> Someone in my Patreon group th- uh, today was just like, "I'm looking at moving to Europe. Is it true you get 20 days of holidays?" And I'm like, "No, that's terrible. No one would do that in Europe." And he's like, "Wait, what?" And I'm like, "No, no, that would be." absolutely illegal to have that few holidays and he's like oh i thought that was the best thing about moving oh to europe it's like might get 20 days <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh wow but anyway um 
Yeah, so in a lot of ways, I was isolated from that hard pain. I mean, I talk with people every day um, that are in that place. I talk with pastors every day that are deconstructing and locked into that system. I talk with people that are employed by their family members in a Christian family business, and they're deconstructing, and they are going, I don't know what to do because I can't pay my mortgage or, you know, whatever. I, I am locked into the system. So, you know, I, I, I recognize I was very lucky in a lot of ways that I hadn't kind of tied myself into a system where I had built no way out really. Um, you know, I really did have a way out where I could literally get any job and probably make more money. So it was kind of nice to just be like, eh, whatever, who cares? Um, a lot of pastors, they're making big money and they are qualified to do very little. Yeah. And so they go, what do I do next? Because if I go do anything else, I can't make mortgage payments. Like, 100%. And it's 100%. a big, big, and I know that we there's a lot of complexity there to, uh, you know, people in power, people that have become a part of the system, but you know, you, you understand this as well as many people, like there's a lot to reconcile there and, and we shouldn't just go, oh, poor pastors locked into the system. You know, th there's complexity there where people are part of a system and they've been complicit in a lot of harm and, and problematic stuff. And, and sometimes it's like bummer, you know, you have to start from the beginning, boom, yep. you've, you've done pretty well off of really harmful systems so yeah far. no i that that well you said that resonates a lot like i uh in your particular story i was a church planter once upon a time but i was what they call bivocational which mm. is code for you get a you have a nine to five and yeah, then yeah, yeah. we'll kind of throw you some peanuts to work a few hours on the weekends well right. it was way more than a few hours on the weekends but you were getting paid the equivalent of a few hours on a, on one day you know a week basically yeah. um and so leaving the church, I was, I feel looking back really fortunate because I tell people mm. all the time that if I had gotten what I had hoped five for five years down the line, mm -hmm, if I yeah. got what I hoped for once upon a time and I was this, you know, mega church worship pastor or whatever that what I used to think was the dream, if that had happened, then I, who knows where I would have wound up or landed or how difficult yeah, it would have been seriously. to hop out of a system like that. So I, I am certainly counting my, my blessings. Yeah. Um, Got it. I, I would love to, uh, I went on that tangent, but really what I want to talk about is the deconstruction research that you do. Um, yeah. You actually were incredibly kind to submit a voice uh, memo once upon a time. Um, I had done an episode um, on DRCK about reconstruction. And at the time, mm. there was this whole conversation involving reconstruction. And you were really, really great to send in a clip and, and it was used on the show. Um, I would love to talk about some of the research. I would love to talk about some of the misinformation that you were hearing. Like, I, I would love to just spend a brunt of our time in in that. Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. That's where I'd love to live. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, love, I love staying in the data. Um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, deconstruction is a complex, complex thing, uh, a complex term. So if you think about um, deconstruction, generally speaking as we understand it as it's used in this community obviously it's used in like construction or you know it's used in philosophy and those are kind of two you know wings where you could look at how that word's used and it would probably still in some ways apply and you could use analogies from each but really it's its own thing in this space in this community when we talk about deconstructing faith um and it's a weird one right because over the years people have lost faith or maybe they've stopped attending church or maybe you know they they've 
um, radically shifted in their faith. And often there's terms applied to them. So maybe they change from being a conventional Christian to a progressive Christian, right? But we, we knew the ter- title for that. You know, you're a progressive Christian. Or maybe they stopped going to church and um, statistically, you know, through the academic world, those people would be de- identified as de-churched is the technical term for people that's used to attend regularly and stop. Um, or maybe they stopped believing entirely and they became unaffiliated or became nuns or duns. These, there's all sorts of terms here. Um, but what's interesting about deconstruction is that you can deconstruct and that might be any one of those things. So you can deconstruct and be identified as a de-churched Christian, but deconstructed Christians are not de-churched because we know that between 15 to sort of 25% of Christians that deconstruct still remain in a church at least once a week, which for some people is like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Yeah. Right? But we, but you know, that's a broad thing. Maybe they do a house church of their own. Maybe they have some sort of level of faith with Jesus. They're kind of like, you know, reclaiming maybe they're part of a progressive movement, progressive churches. You know, there's a lot of churches that are a lot more inclusive, a lot more healing, a lot more liberal, a lot more, you know, healthier, you know, whether you agree entirely with it or not will definitely be debatable. Um, but hey, a big chunk of people that deconstruct still go to church. So you can't say, oh, deconstruction Christians don't go to church. Or you can't even say they're atheist or agnostic or even that they stay Christian because all of those are represented in this very broad community. And so the the problem with deconstructing uh, Christians is typically we identify with faith. We identify by either um, your actions. So maybe you attend church X amount of times a year and you tick a box on, you know, Pew Research or, you know, whatever um, scientist somewhere that is researching it goes, that's enough times that you're a Christian. Or you read the Bible a certain amount or you pray a certain amount um, or that you've said a certain prayer and you're a Christian, right? And, and whatever it might be. Um, deconstructed Christians don't tend to have a specific thing that they do that you can go, oh, you did that or you do that, you are deconstructed. So it's quite hard to pin down. Or typically what we do is we go, oh, people of a certain faith or lack of faith, maybe even an atheist, we know what they believe. So an atheist doesn't believe that there's significant proof that there's a God, you know, so they do not believe in a God. Um, Or a Christian believes that maybe Jesus died and rose again broadly. That probably includes most forms of Christianity. Um, Again, with a deconstructing, uh, a Christian that's deconstructed, that's come out of uh, their faith tradition, we don't know what they believe. Maybe they are an atheist. Maybe they're agnostic. Maybe they still believe in God. Um, and so again, it's really hard for these kind of um, broad categories that we used to use to associate these kind of um, faith movements. It doesn't work with deconstruction because deconstruction is not about what you believe or what you do. Deconstruction is about a shift away from something. Um, and so the, really the only thing that we have in common is that we have left our tradition of uh, our faith tradition. Um, and, and so generally what our studies and research has found is there's three markers for someone that deconstructs. So if you tick these three boxes, generally speaking, with about 97% confidence, you're likely to be someone that's deconstructed or, or if you identify as deconstructing, um, you're likely to tick all three of these boxes. So the first one is that you question core values of your faith tradition. That's really common beyond deconstruction. A lot of people in church question core values, um, but they find a decent answer, right? So maybe you, when you were a Christian, were like, how come people say God is good and he's like killing everyone everywhere all over the place and there's genocide and there's rape and there's 
pretty fucked up, right? I mean, most of us as Christians probably ask that question, right? Mm. But somewhere along the lines, we found an answer and we kind of were like, yeah, okay. And looking back, we're like, that's crazy that I accepted that answer. But at the time it was like, okay, yeah, no, fine. Um, so that's not the only thing that you need to have done as someone that's deconstructive, but you, you won't get far if you don't question your core values. Uh, and you know, I, I often say, people ask, well, what's a core belief? And I, I tend to say, you know, it's a core belief when you imagine telling your pastor the question and you're immediately like palm sweaty, butthole clenched, like panicking, <laughs> right? So, you know, like there's like certain beliefs you can question and you just end up being, oh, that's like, that's crazy, Dave. Yeah, he believes that uh, Jesus coming back after the rapture, not during or or before, you know, oh, crazy Dave, he's fine. Just, you know, leave him be, he's great. We won't let him teach on Sunday, but he's fine. So like, he's not questioned a core value of this church. It might be a core mm. value of some churches, but then there's like, heretic dave yeah. who's like i don't know if i believe that jesus died and raised from the dead he's not asking his pastor that without serious sweaty palms right <laughs> hashtag um, sweaty palms butthole clench i love it great done immediate that's there a movement that's a movement in the church um so that's how you know you're asking the right questions or the wrong questions it might be but the second marker and this is the key is that you f you find that your faith tradition no longer can answer that question satisfactory mm. and you have to seek your own answers now your answer might be there is no answer screw it i'm out you know it doesn't it doesn't mean that you find an answer and go oh i, I fixed it i solved it i've now figured out the god problem or you know the odyssey or any big th theological or philosophical questions it just means that the answer your pastor gave week in week out that you used to nod and go yeah that makes sense doesn't make sense anymore and mm. you're turning around going where else can i go to find an answer and then the third marker, which is really fascinating, is that people, wherever they land, whether they end up becoming a progressive Christian or an atheist or agnostic, we find again and again and again when we look at people that deconstruct is that whatever they hold, they hold to it as though they believe it, they, they hold to it with conviction, but they hold it lightly. Uh, we find that deconstructing Christians don't have fundamentalism in them nearly as much. They still have some, uh, you know, depending on how far they've come in certain journeys or whatever it might be. But generally speaking, they will go, ah, I don't believe in a God anymore, but I could be wrong. Or, well, I, I really believe that God is inclusive and loving and kind, but you know what? Maybe there is no God, I could be wrong. Uh, th there's, a, there's a humility there, which is kind of funny, right? Because it's a very Christian word. Uh, <laughs> um, and Christians wouldn't like to think that they're no, they have no humility at all in what they believe. No. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, we find those three markers, generally speaking, are how we identify this group. So it's not about what they believe and how they act. It's much more about what they used to believe, how they've navigated away from it, and now how they hold whatever they do believe uh, moving forward, which is a fascinating thing to kind of um, try and pin down. Uh, it's a very nebulous, broad category, very broad category. Um, yeah, and especially because so many people will do all three of those things and never even hear the word deconstruction and never mm. need to identify as deconstruction. You know, how many people leave this move, leave, leave Christianity and just become an atheist and go, eh, I'm done, I'm good, I'm out. And, and never even, you know, because some of us really need this community and have some wrestling and processing and healing and all that different stuff. And this is so helpful for that. Other people don't do that. I've met no need to rebrand. Just didn't. They just, yeah. Went, yeah, I did this before I knew there was a deconstruction. By the time I found deconstruction, I'm like, eh, don't need it, I'm good. Yeah. Um, so it's really fascinating because there's a huge amount of people out there that 
don't even fall in this very broad group that's already becoming a very large group itself. Um, mm. Yeah, sorry, I'll pause there and you can no, I, bounce I, it. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I think you saying, you talking about the, the term deconstruction, um, the label deconstruct, whatever, the, it is more marked by like the negative space, which I feel is really interesting. Mm. Um, because I think so much of the conversation that I have heard from megachurch pastors, not by any voluntary choice of mine, it is things that people are are cramming down my DMs. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They'll go, can you believe what this pastor said about the deconstruction community, deconstruction space? And very often it is what you said. It is the sort yeah. of like, these people are just, you know, like they're bitter and now they they don't believe in Jesus. Or these people just really want to sin and therefore they stop going to church. Yeah. They're like these really kind of, um, you're moving they're moving towards something definitive. And I find it really interesting in your research that you're finding that deconstruction is marked by an undoing versus what they're going toward. That's super fascinating. Yeah. And, and it's funny, right? Because you, you used an amazing phrase there. It, people saying, can you believe this pastor, right? Can you believe like Mark Driscoll doesn't like deconstruction? Can you believe John <laughs> Cooper is going to war with deconstruction? And you're like, well, yeah. Of course, I can believe that. What else would they do? Like, you used to be this person. How Uh can you not believe that they've Mm -hmm. done that? Like, it's amazing how quickly we forget what we were like and we forget what the movement we came from and and the way of thinking. This is a fascinating component. So, I study a lot of psychological development. It's like a little hobby of mine. I've got like about 20 hours of teaching on YouTube on it and stuff like that. But psychological development is a fascinating mini world. And I'll touch on it because it's really important with deconstruction and no one in this space talks about it. And it pisses me off because I don't really have the time to do it. Um, But psychological development um, is a branch of psychology which looks at how people develop over the course of their life. And it also looks at how societies develop over courses of centuries, millennia. Um, And what's really interesting is, generally speaking, people as they develop go through these stages of life. And we've looked at this in various uh, groups of people throughout the world in different times. We still see the same progress. Kids go through the same process of growing up and adults continue if they're healthy and they're in a good place and they're not struggling and they're not in abuse and they're not, you know, working three part-time jobs just to get by. And, you know, they have a bit of mental space and all these kind of prerequisites for healthy growth. Um, Psychological development sees people grow through these different stages. And so you might see, I'll give you a simple example that all of us that know a kid um, probably get toddlers, right? Babies are nice. They're pretty easy. They're pretty easy going. And even towards the beginning, once they start moving around and speaking, they're fairly easy going. And then at some point they suddenly go, no. And that word is just the beginning of the worst time of your life, right? Because that kid has suddenly discovered I'm a person mm. and I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, and and it's a pain in the ass, right? But it is a huge psychological development milestone. They've developed an identity. Without mm. that, they would not be a person, right? So we need that. Now, really unhealthy people that are in abuse or maybe don't have the, the framework to healthily grow and continue moving forward end up becoming presidents of America and things like that. But, you know, <laughs> they basically are psychologically a toddler on many levels they just hit stuff with a stick if they don't like it and they expect everyone to do what they say and they can't really see other people's opinions and and feel their emotions and things like that but generally speaking if you're not um a president of america um you probably healthily develop some empathy around the age five six seven you start to go huh when i hit that person that probably hurt because when I get hit, it hurts and I don't like that. So maybe I shouldn't hit someone else and maybe we should work together and we should grow and develop. And so you start to build empathy and you start to grow beyond your own individual identity 
as a community you start to become more communal thinking and you think of yourself as a family as a as a group in school maybe some friends and then as you move on you start to see less and less authority from your parents as the black and white word of god and you start to think for yourself right and this is the worst again right we're back to teenage uh, we're back to the toddler kind of stage with the teenagers right and suddenly teenagers going shut up dad you don't know everything so as we can see these development stages through a child, right? We can take a step back and look at communities going through these same stages, okay? And so very um, uh, underdeveloped communities today might be very like Wild West, right? Everyone running around, hitting people with a stick, taking whatever they want, screaming. Think of like a community of just Donald Trump's, right? It would be a nightmare. It'd just be, you know, wasteland purge style. Um, we don't have that community in the world anymore. We've, we've developed more. We've developed um, law and order and structure and democracy and police and military. And all these things are questionable, right? There's a lot of problems with them, but they were a big step up from, you know, purged society full of Donald Trump's, right? And so that was a big stage for people. And, they, and, and in that stage, you start to develop a, a, a focus on we need safety, certainty, and security, and we get it from authority. And that's what society has been at for the last couple of thousand years. Society has looked for safety, certainty, security from authority figures. And it's done us pretty well. We've evolved quite far because of it. Um, but the thing is, we've evolved beyond that now as society. And this is where the church struggles. The church was really established in this time. And so the church functions great in this time because it's an authority figure that tells people how to be safe, certain, and secure, and what the right answer is, and what the wrong answer is, and how to be good, and how to be bad, and how to avoid punishment, and how to get rewards. Um, and suddenly, the world moves on and goes, hey, maybe we could operate a bit beyond that. Do we need to only do good so we avoid bad? Do we, you know, can we not just be good people inherently? Right? And this is where the Christians go, what? How can you, how can you like have any morals if you don't, you know, have a Bible or you don't listen to God? Or, and, and so all my, my point in saying this is that what's generally happening in deconstruction, and this is where a lot of Christians are right, where they're like, oh, you're just becoming more worldly. And it's like, yes, we are, because the world has started to evolve beyond looking to black and white single authority figures to give them all the answers, right? It's, it's like the thing of like people looking to their pastor for advice on should I get an immunization from COVID? And it's like, hey, great question to ask. Ask an immunologist. Ask your local GP, right? Like ask someone down at the hospital, even feck, like ask a receptionist at the hospital, probably more likely to know than your pastor, right? Now, if you want to ask about God, ask your pastor. Sure, he might know some stuff. His, his expertise, he probably won't nine times out of 10. But you know, he's, he's studied in that area, but we're growing beyond that. We're moving beyond that. The thing that's really fascinating about this, and the reason I bring it up is that try and explain to a toddler what empathy is or that why empathy is important or why they need to start having empathy or why people that have empathy are doing the right thing and they're doing the wrong thing. Is that going to work? No. And in fact, would you even look at a toddler and say, well, this kid's shit. We just need a better kid, right? You go, well, no, this kid's a toddler and he needs to grow up, but we need to create a healthy structure where they can grow. And and this is the problem that we have when facing the church, right? We look at someone like Mark Driscoll yelling, you know, how dare you? Or we look at, you know, John Cooper going, let's go to war. Or Lisa Childers like writing another book going, look at how ungodly all these people are or whatever. And, and the simple fact is we're looking at people that are at a prior stage of development, looking forward in utter confusion they don't they can't comprehend what's ahead they can only see where they're at and before and i think on some level 
we have to look at that and go, well, of course you're upset. Like, like what? Like, what? Do we honestly expect John Cooper to go, man, let's really think this through. Let's think about the nuances of deconstruction. Let's think about where they're coming. That's not going to happen. I don't know mm. John Cooper. Maybe he's maybe a bit more evolved than I think, but it's unlikely. It's really unlikely. And so I think it's really important that we understand that there's stages of development as we grow and develop in a healthy way. Um, and we need to have on some level, um, if not for their benefit, for our mental health, a realization that if I'm going to write this, you'd say this to a parent, if you're going to expect your two-year-old to have compassion and empathy and share and be kind and understand everything about the world, you can have a really shit few years. You mm -hmm. need to step back and go, this is two. Lower this the bar is what we're right we need to let's work on some of these things and let's try and move them towards being five and six in a healthy way but they're they've got a few years before they're even beginning to have these conversations dude whenever i whenever i have i talk to my kids so i have a soon-to-be six-year-old and a soon-to-be four-year-old and and we're often having these conversations of like how do you think that would make her feel you know, or if someone did that to you, how to make, so this sort of empathy conversation, it is yeah. happening in real time. So you talking about it is so, so common. And when I, and, and there is this feeling, right? There are times where they just don't understand why something isn't yeah. going the way they want. And they just, you know, of course they scream and they kick and they throw. And I always just go, I know, buddy, big feelings, big feelings, yeah. man. And so Huge now feelings. every time, every time I see like Mark Driscoll or John Cooper, I'm just like, in my mind, I'm going to start going scared, oh, big feelings. scared toddler. In yeah, the grand scheme of things, buddy. scare toddler. Of course you're feeling these big feelings. Of course. I, I, I'm I, not going to let you hit anyone over the head. You know, <laughs> right. we're going to try and create structures around this so you don't continue harm. But I'm not going to expect anything beyond that from you. Like, I'm huh. going to expect you probably need some structure to help you. I'm going to expect that we need government intervention before you actually do anything that's healthy for society. Like... Yeah, that's gonna happen. Like you're you're not gonna suddenly be inclusive to people that are gay or trans. That's not gonna happen. So yeah, we're gonna work on the government side of things to force your hands. And yeah, maybe in twenty years you'll be a bit more open. I I, I want to run down a rabbit trail of kind of like the the research trends that you found in deconstruction. Sorry, we, we should that, do that as well. <laughs> but, yeah, but I get so that, distracted. No, I love it. But before that, there is something that I think. Um, Hearing you talk about this and the fact that you've interacted in this space for so long, I feel like a mark of someone who has kind of grown a lot and done a lot of personal work um, along this whole sliding scale that is the human experience, right? Um, it, I, I think the room you allow for other people in different frameworks speaks volumes to me about how much work you've had to do on yourself and how far you've come in that process. Because I think, it, just as you said, right, it is very easy, and I do this all the time, it is very easy to be like, fuck that guy on the horse he rode in on because of X, Y, Z. And sometimes it's absolutely needed, and he needs a swift kick to the pants, right? Oh, and I but, still think it. And he's I, I doing might not too, scream right? it in his still, face, but I definitely yeah. think it still. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, and, and you also are known for like showing up and then dropping some bombs on, on folks who need to have the bombs dropped on them. That said, I'm talking about memes, people. I'm not talking about literal <laughs> destruction. But um, that there is, I think, a healthy like way to get kind of underneath that where like you know that like yeah i'm gonna stop you from i'm gonna say something about this this stuff but also like i am not at all surprised by the way you're saying it the things you're saying and and i say this all the time is like that was sort absolutely me five six years ago absolutely mm -hmm. the kind of very like the dismissive writing in a way and we can talk a little bit about some of the common 
Um, maybe you can tell me about kind of some of the common um, ways that people use to sweep the deconstruction yeah. community under the rug. Um, but it's it's there is a sort of humility to the approach um, that I think is a healthy place to land on if you're yeah. going to exist in this space for any <laughs> duration of time. Yeah, I think once I under start to understand the framework of psychological development, right? You start to look at a toddler and you go, gosh, we need to just sit and hold that kid that's scared and crying. And they need space to process that emotion, to be scared, to recognize it's okay that they're scared, that someone's safe is here for them. And hopefully giving that framework, they're given space to grow and to, to move forward. And they're given great examples around them. I think one of the biggest things we can do in the deconstruction space is just be fucking awesome, which I think we are right across the board. There's maybe some bad awesome. apples here and there, no pun intended, um, <laughs> but you know, the, the wrong kinds. Um, but you know, generally speaking, we're showing up, we're, we're making the world a better place. And you know what? Come, come or don't like you're, you're going the way of the dodo right i mean 50 years from now you're going to be extinct the american church is bleeding at about one percent a year and it has been for about nine years now um really? it was a little bit below that before then it was it's still pretty high so you know you're talking huge i mean a 10 percent drop in the american church in 10 years that's off the charts and that doesn't include figures from 2020 21 and 22 so god knows what those are um like the church is fucked anyway if it doesn't if it doesn't come along for the ride it's totally fucked if it does come along right hey maybe it becomes something that's maybe healthy and good you know i mean i don't know in this country we're basically scraping by on food banks because our government's so fucking evil um like food banks are run by christians people in this country about six million people would starve to death about 10 percent of our country would starve to death without christians putting on food banks so you know what mm. hey christians are doing some good stuff I'm appreciative of it, right? It's that it's that community, it's that safety, security, law, order, structure. Hey, that's good when you want foods to get in the hands of people that are hungry, you know? So it works sometimes. I often say as well, like something like people coming out of prison, right? The people that generally often, a lot of people that are in that this state um, have generally come from a world where they're in a lot of turmoil. There's not a lot of safety. There's not a lot of security. There's not a lot of uh, certainty. And they are looking for that. And sometimes that's why, you know, they've done studies on progressive churches and conventional churches going into prisons and working with um, prisoners and getting them saved. And then they come out and they join the churches and they help them get jobs and stuff. And what's really interesting is you and I probably think, oh, a progressive church, a bit more enlightened, a bit more inclusive, a bit more kind, understanding trauma, all these different things, they'll have better success, right? Wrong. They have a terrible success rate compared to conventional churches because conventional churches are the next stage. You don't get to jump mm. stages. You don't go from being a toddler to a teenager. You need to go through these stages. And so I think the thing is, we, we look at these stages as bad or good, but the simple fact is they're just what needs to be for the person that's in them right now. Um, and so that's learning that and starting to look at people and looking at someone screaming and yelling about the deconstruction space and going, you're terrified. Of course you're scared. I was you. Of course you look at me. Uh, public speaker who used to like speak in churches who had a huge blog and a podcast and all the Christians were looking at, that's you. And you look at me and go, shit, this is like looking in a mirror. If there's mm. not, if I can't undermine what he was, what I'm looking at is potentially me. There's mm. no reason that that couldn't be me next year. And that's terrifying for someone that's in a psychological state that prioritizes safety, certainty, and security. And this is why I say to like, you know, you sit down with your mom and you say, hey, I think I'm deconstructing. They don't hear that. They hear, I need, to, they've got this internal compass of I need safety, certainty, and security. And what they hear is you need to be very scared. I'm taking your safety. 
You no longer know what's up or down. You thought I was saved. You thought I was in and I'm not. I'm out and I'm going to hell. That's scary. Mm. Maybe you're next. You, I'm taking your certainty. You thought this was a black and white done deal? Definitely not. God knows if I could lose my faith, maybe you could. You know, these are, these are core things that are getting challenged. And so it's not just, oh, my kids lost his faith or my kids going to hell or like my kids wrong or he's one of the bad guys. It's, it's attacking me and my certainty and my whole worldview. And it's, it's threatening everything I believe in. Um, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at scared kids. You're looking at a kid that just found out there's no Santa. And he's like, wait, my parents lie to me? holy shit, what else are they lying to me about, right? Um, you know, that's that's a that's a big kind of moment for some kids. Not all kids go through that. They just go, oh, okay, no Santa, cool, whatever. But some kids go, how could you betray me? Like, you yeah. know, like I can't believe anything you say anymore. This is a huge psychological shift. Um, and so I think it's really important that we understand these stages so that we can talk to grandma. And, and I say this because here's a big deal. This doesn't really matter because you're not going to talk to John Cooper anyway, right? And if you do, you're going to be banging your head against the wall. So just, you know, let him be what he wants to be. Who cares, right? He's talking to people that already think like him anyway. It's a big, uh -huh. massive circle jerk. It's a big yeah, echo chamber for sure. Yeah. Like, but when you talk to your mom, that's a different question. So we can actually use psychological development theory and look at it and go, where is she at? What does she need? And we know she's at a conventional stage that prioritizes safety, certainty, and security. And so I can look at my conversation I have with my mom about telling her I'm going to deconstruct, I've been deconstructing and go, when I have this conversation, I need to prioritize, how do I say this in a way that it probably won't make her feel safe, but keeps her at least having some modicum of safety, having some modicum of security, having some modicum of control. Um, and so even I often laugh, it's silly, but you can say things like, hey, I'd love it if you kept praying for me. Yeah, yeah, ask them to pray for you right now. You don't give a fuck. Maybe you don't even believe in a God, but you know what? That doesn't matter. But them going, oh, you just gave me some control. I now can pray mm -hmm. for you. Oh, I feel a little bit better, right? There's certain things that you can do to try and help them feel more safe, certain, and secure. Even things like, hey, I'm not even saying this is wrong right now. I'm just questioning and processing this, but I know that you believe this. And I do not think that it's wrong for you to believe it. I think it's really important for you. And I'm not saying you need to leave faith or I'm not even saying that I'm right and you're wrong. I'm just saying I'm going on this journey and I really hope it doesn't change what you believe right now. I want you to be able to hold what you believe. Now that might be hard to say because we might be looking at harm. We can look at racism and you know all sorts of homophobia and lots of shit that's really wrong with what they believe right now. Absolutely. In the same way that we, you know, our toddler might go out the door and hit someone on the head again tomorrow because they don't understand empathy. But you have to go, well, they're not going to understand empathy overnight. They're not going to change that overnight, right? So we have to figure out how do we make these baby steps? So I think that's really key for people that are having these conversations, which is generally all of us have these hard questions and it can go really badly. And generally speaking, all you're going to do is mitigate how hard it is. You're not really going to make it good. Uh, that does exist for some people, but yeah. Anyway, sorry, rabbit trail. No, talk, talk to me. Like, I think there is some situations, like I have had conversations with folks and I literally would kind of assume a completely different posture because I am trying to just pad as much as possible because I know you are in no place yeah. to hear what I'm about to say. And I have no desire to fucking shit on your whole worldview no. and ruin your whole life because there is some sort of relationship there. Perhaps there is some love for that person or even some sort of respect for that person, even though you align in, in yeah. so many different ways. I, I think one thing that I do know that there are situations where it's like, dude, the harm that you're doing and the, the oh, distress absolutely. that you're causing me 
and the emotional like damage that I'm experiencing just by being, just by even opening up the door to this conversation is not, the juice ain't no. worth the squeeze, my man. It's yeah. not worth even talking to you. Yeah. And none of this takes away setting up boundaries. That's important. None of it takes away, you know, if you feel that you're quote unquote Christian uncle at Thanksgiving making racist comments is just you're done and you want to confront that please confront that shit right yeah um, again who knows how much it's going to change racist uncle Bob but sure hey he needs a slap in the face he needs a wake-up call that you don't get to do that um so like you know this is definitely not saying live and let live don't confront don't set up uh opposition against systems of oppression but I think it is highlighting that and this is so key and I've learned this so much from um from a whole bunch of different people in a very different um, set of uh, world circumstances who generally speaking are not cishet white males. Sure. Um, that generally speaking, fighting individuals is a really big waste of time. You, you can do it, but largely if we're going to change the world, we need to fight systemic change. We need to fight mm. systems of oppression. We need to come against systems. We need to try and enact systemic change and really that drags the world forward, um, kicking and screaming. A lot of people aren't going to grow. They just get forced against uh, yeah. their will. They get pushed. And most of us sure. deconstructing, we're probably dragged kicking and screaming into where we are right now. Um, mm. There's an interesting data point there, you know, about 66%, so about two thirds um, of people that deconstruct say that they had no choice whatsoever in the process i'm actually really surprised it's one of the, i think it's the biggest statistic that shocked me out of all of the work i've done is that a third of people said that they had a choice in the matter I, I was really surprised what's interesting is the people that say they had a choice um often uh are much more likely to remain christian as well which is fascinating and much more likely to remain in church so i think there's a component there that needs to be fleshed out and looked at a bit more um it could be really interesting um but yeah uh, generally speaking, for most of us, this was not a choice. We got just side punched right out of nowhere, knocked out. What the fuck was that? And now we're dragged out of the room, you know, kicking and screaming, going, I want back. I want that community. I want that certainty. I want that safety. Yeah. Why is it all going? Yeah. Why yeah. the hell didn't I take the blue pill? Right. Exactly. Right. right. Has there been any data aside from that one you mentioned? What other data have you seen that you're like, oh, that didn't see that coming or this is oh this this is exactly what i would have expected but it's just pretty fucking wild i mean there's loads i mean gosh so much i posted one recently that i thought was really interesting and people really enjoyed so it in hindsight it's like oh of course um but the, one of the things that stood out to me really fascinating is that um people that remain in church and people that remain christian are about 50 percent more likely to be male than female now when we're talking about sex in our studies, we don't have enough data beyond those binaries. Um, there's just not enough representation in the data. If you're listening to this and you are non-binary, please take part in our research. We really need that voice represented, but you need a high enough percentage in the samples to really say anything. Otherwise, you might spread up misinformation. Um, so we can only talk about male and female divides as far as uh, our research right now. But that really, like, at one point, I was just like, whoa, that's a big difference. 50% is a big difference, right? You're talking like, um, let me try to think of the numbers. Actually, I might have them somewhere here. Um, where is it? Yeah, you're talking about 14% of um, females will attend church at least once a week that deconstruct. But 21% of males will attend church at least once a week. So that's a big jump. But then if you stop and think about it, right? So we don't have the data on why that is, right? Because that's a whole nother level of granular data to start 
asking and doing surveys on and things like that. But if you think about it, there's a lot of hypothesis that makes sense, right? Why are men going to stay in the church? Because they have the power. It's their church. Yes. It's their structure, right? If 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 a guy starts asking questions, people even honestly respect that to some degree. Oh, he's asking the hard questions. Oh, I'm sure that's a good godly thing, and I'm sure Pastor Bob will put him right. But that's okay. That he's asking questions. A woman starts asking questions. Pff, go see your husband. You should wow. not be disobedient. You should not ask questions or or whatever, right? There's so many different, or even like the harm that's perpetuated in the church is much more likely to be. Um, and this is not to to um, just say that there's no harm done to any men in church because there's plenty of harm done to men in church. Um, and on some level, everyone is a victim in the church in some way, shape, or form. Um, but there's no question that harm is much more unbalanced towards people that are not uh, cis het men. Right. Mm. Um, and so, of course, they're more likely to stay where they haven't been harmed um, versus people that have been harmed. And once they start being more aware of what harm looks like, they're going to walk away. They don't want to put up with that shit and they're not going to put up with it being perpetuated either. Um, so there's certain things that start to make sense when you actually think about these points, but you'd never really go, oh, oh, yeah. Um, but even the, the female male split. So. Um, the deconstruction space is female. I don't know if do you guys have like data on your like podcast or your Instagram on like do you ever look oh, at that if stuff? I, look, I, I don't. I haven't looked at like any of the insights and stuff. But I mean, I could just by by like uh, just anecdotally, yeah, yeah. I it is overwhelmingly yeah. women. So um, a lot of people know that the church is slightly female over male. If again, you're going to work with just these binaries, and, and please forgive me because I do work with these binaries, but it's largely because that's just where the data is right now. I'd love to not. Um, but if you're going to split the church in those two binaries, the, the, the Christian church in America is about 54% female, 46% male. But if you look in the deconstruction space, uh, I've got the data here, it's about 75% female, 20% male, and 5% being some other category, non-binary, trans, you know, there's a lot of different um, self-identifications within that. Um, but that's a massive difference. And there's no doubt that that points to a very female um, audience and, 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 and movement. Um, it, it skews massively away from what the church generally looks like. Um, and so it's, it, it automatically says, well, yeah, and not only are men that deconstruct likely to, more likely to stay in the church, but there's probably a whole bunch of men that don't deconstruct at all. The thing that stood out the most, right? You ready for this? This is going to blow your flipping mind. This is I've done this. I've done this study in um in, in our research. I've done random samples multiple times. It keeps coming up the same amount. Um, and then I've done like Instagram polls. I've done like so much stuff. I've asked other influencers, whatever the right word is, on Instagram that are in the deconstruction space. Can you ask people this question and tell me what percentage say yes or no? The amount of people that have some form of Christian schooling is so big it's ridiculous okay you ready for this so in the deconstruction space 25 percent of people have at some point in their upbringing been homeschooled wow 25 percent do you do you have any idea how big that is and how much of an anomaly that is it, it's, it's wild i mean that's a huge amount yeah i mean i homeschooled at one point the big one you ready for this 36 percent of people that deconstruct have been to some form of Bible school, Bible college, or seminary. My gosh. That's a third, over a third. And so this is what makes it so funny, right? Because what is one of the things that gets levied against people that deconstruct again and again Not and again? Not real Christians. Yeah. They don't know their shit. They're the they not real yeah. Christians there. 
you're not yeah you know, they weren't passionate and this is what's funny is as loads of studies have been done on people that de-church and the people that disaffiliate but um if you grab a hundred people out of an evangelical church and you ask them how often do you pray how often do you read your bible how often do you attend church how often do you attend additional church meetings like prayer groups home groups whatever how often do you volunteer are any of you on staff you ask a hundred people at random in a church that and it's really important to do these randomly samples you know so you get the proper good solid data and then you randomly sample 100 people at deconstruct and ask them the same questions every single time the people at deconstruct score way higher now it's not how often are you doing that now but how often were you doing it when you started to deconstruct? They read their Bible more often. They prayed more often. They were more involved in their church. They went to more extracurricular meetings. They were more likely to volunteer. They're more likely to be on staff, like we showed. They're more likely to be uh, in seminary or have gone to Bible college or Bible schools. Um, in fact, I put out an interesting one recently. Um, Pew Research Center did a, a funny study where they asked seven questions of different faith groups. Uh, so these seven Christian questions and they asked people of all different faiths but they did all the different christian groups as well so they asked mormons and evangelicals and mainline christians and mate honestly the questions are so fucking funny right you ready like the first question which bible figure is most closely associated with leading the exodus from egypt <laughs> do you, you yeah. hazard a guess it's, it's been, been a while, while right it's been so, a while but i'm pretty sure that was moses Dude, obviously it was Jeremiah. Oh, no, it was right. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. I mean, like, duh. That's you know? hilarious. But what's interesting is out of every faith organization, the evangelicals scored the highest. Mm. 86% of evangelicals knew that, which is, to me, I was utterly terrified by that. 98% um, of people that deconstruct knew that question. Wow. Um, in fact, when I look through it um, across the board, of those seven questions, 74% of evangelicals uh, could score all five, uh, oh. all seven, um, seventy-four percent, ninety-one percent of people at deconstructed could score all seven. <laughs> we know our shit, man. And yeah, some of yeah. us that are deconstructed. Some of the people answering that poll left church in the Bible. They've not picked mm -hmm. up a Bible in ten years, and that stuff's in there, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so again, we we know from data that we were the most passionate people. I talked to, I actually talked to Alyssa Childers recently because she got told by her publisher to contact some people that knew something. Um, I'm assuming, I don't know, I don't know why she was contacting me, but I think it's because I do research and she was like, I need to have all this data. And she says, what would you tell pastors? Like, like, you know, how do we stop this? How do we do this? And I was like, to be honest with you, the number one way, and this is genuine advice, really as best you can, stop trying to make passionate Christians and really focus on lukewarm outcomes. If you can make sure that <laughs> yeah. people just read their Bible occasionally, yeah, they only look so at the good verses. Yeah, they, It's actually funny because these are the people they hate, right? They hate like Joel Osteen because he's too sure. wishy-washy, but I'm like, dude, he's right. going to have way less people deconstructing, I guarantee, because yeah. they're not looking at Bible verses that are hard. Right. Um, and they're not fucking believing some like Westboro Baptist shit in like a suit, you know? Right. Which, let's be honest, most of Neo-Calvinism is basically just Westboro Baptist, but yeah. nicer. Uh, they got a smile. Um Wow. So, you know, I was saying like, this is, this is a simple fact is if you can create some lukewarm average ass Christians, hmm. they're not going to deconstruct. It's the ones that are passionate. It's the ones that are on fire. Now there will be some people that listen to this who are like, yeah, I didn't really give a shit. And I was lukewarm. Yeah. Obviously the data covers a huge spectrum and the distribution is broad. But when we look at that bell curve in the middle, we have a way skewed group that is way more passionate than the middle group in evangelical Christianity. It's funny you say that because I, I would actually contend. I feel like that a person who considers himself deconstruction, deconstructed, if they didn't have some sort of foundational 
belief that was really important to them, then they wouldn't even they use the term away. deconstruction because there's no yeah. term. It's like saying like, oh, like I'm an ex-motorcyclist. Did you ever ride motorcycles? No, I've never ridden motorcycles. Yeah. So why, would, <laughs> yeah. why in the world would I tell people that I'm an ex-motorcyclist if I never really rode motorcycles? You know right. what I'm saying? So it's no surprise that people who use the term deconstruction is because they had something to deconstruct in the first place. Exactly, exactly. And, and these people score way higher than, um, you know, like an atheist or an agnostic, someone that identifies very clearly as those things, even though those people also fall into deconstruction sometimes. Hmm. Um, so we know that people that deconstruct, again, it's a very unique subset of people because they were passionate. They were really committed, really passionate people on the whole. Um, and so it really pisses me off, this misinformation. It's one of the reasons I'm doing this data and it's why I'm getting the data out there as easily as possible in as many people's hands, getting PDF reports, you know, everything. I put, I put the cold data. People can go and get the data sets on Kaggle, which is like, a, or Kaggle, sorry, which is like an online uh, data analysis website where you can download the data and then do your own study on it. Hmm. People can literally download the data from our studies and then look at it themselves and try and come to their own conclusions. They can compare it with other surveys they do and try and figure out interesting insights or compare it to studies that have been done against regular Christians and go, can we compare certain things? like. I want this stuff out there because we need to have a voice that isn't the fucking angry evangelical Christian, right? Anytime someone deconstructs some famous worship pastor or whatever, because that's the only people that ever, somehow, I don't know, newspapers give a shit about that. I don't even know why they care. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, whatever. They do that. And suddenly the New York Times contacts like John Piper for an op-ed piece about deconstruction. And you're like, really john piper are you fucking on crack um, like what are we doing here why are we asking this guy about deconstruction but he's got an opinion i guarantee sure. and he'll share it yeah. and that's the voice right you google deconstruction stick it into a search engine and the top results are ones by christians they're they're popular um articles by big news outlets but they've asked christians for their input and that's the description of deconstruction it's not Here's some cold, hard data from people that have actually studied this group. Mm. Um, and, and also, I think it's important that people in this space start to understand what they're a part of. Because I think there's another component as well. And you might have seen this, Adrian. And I know we've talked about this in, in general across the boards, uh, just in the social media space. There are people out there that have an idea of what deconstruction is because they've deconstructed. And they are trying to force everyone into their little box of what that looks like so they've become a progressive christian and that's how you correctly deconstruct hmm. or maybe they became an atheist and that's how you need to deconstruct or whatever it might be um and they have a model they have an outcome you deconstruct you become like me they have a path you need to deconstruct this 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 and this and this is how you do it um and unfortunately that that will work for a lot of people because it will work some people will go on that path and that'll be the right path for them but unfortunately, actually, it kind of derails the process because what it does is it keeps people in this mindset of there's an authority figure that's going to tell me how to do this. Mm. Um, and so even if you end up in the right path and that's the right one for you, you're, you're not allowing yourself to grow healthily by coming back under another person. And so I think it's really important that even people in this space, especially people that are leading in this space, understand how diverse this space is. You know, I think it's really important. The amount of people I talk to and they go, wait, there's that many people that are still Christian? I'm like, yeah. Believe it or not, that's part of our group. That's part of our world. So mm -hmm. We can't just erase those people, right? And so we need to accept that, huh, people that deconstruct, some of them stay Christian, and I need to be as inclusive and open to those people as I would be to an atheist person or an agnostic person um, or someone that goes into Buddhism or Taoism or something else. Um, so I think it's really important that we we change the narrative and we, we the narrative becomes what the data says. Um, rather than the narrative becomes what 
someone opinionated with some anecdotal evidence says, or someone opinionated with an agenda to uh, dismiss and discredit the person that left, or to just try and make him and everyone in his little subgroup that's terrified feel safe, which is mm. generally what it is. Generally, I don't think there's much malice actually in these people. I don't think John Cooper actually hates people at Deconstructor. I think he's just really scared. I think he's really, really scared. Like, God, who are the public people that deconstruct it's all worship leaders right and isn't that what he does he's a worship leader so like of course right he's bloody terrified because everyone he knows that's in his space is fucking deconstructing yeah and he he bet he used to think that a lot of those people bet he used to look up to them and go oh yeah they're good godly people i've talked to them and they're they're great they're good people shit they're like me suddenly ooh, i need to make sure they're not like me i need to make sure i can create a narrative where they're not like me because i feel scared and that's really all it is. Um, so if we can create that narrative uh, for people, um, not by creating it out of nothing, but by just looking at data and opening a book and saying, this is what this, the story is. This is what the data says. Um, that could be game changing. I think it could be really important for this community to, and I think it's really important for people to hear their voice, right? Because again, like a, a small minority stay Christian, you know, about maybe it depends. It could be between about 15 to about 26%. Depends on things like what country you're in or, or different various things, race and sex and all sorts of different stuff. But a good percentage of people still Christian. But actually, the deconstruction space in some areas can be quite hostile to someone that stays Christian. Um, and so it could be interesting for you to come into a deconstruction space, face hostility and immediately go, oh, there's no space. The deconstruction isn't for people that stay Christian. And walk away and, and not find a safe space for yourself now odds are you'll find something in the progressive church or you know there's still something out there probably fairly easily um but again how important would that be if we could change that and help that person find space to process and um it would enrich our communities and so on so yeah anyway i think i'm just very passionate about trying to make sure every person feels seen in the data even if it's a four percent become buddhist or whatever and they go oh that's me oh there yeah. i am i'm a minority but i'm in there I exist. Wow, I'm not that weird. It's actually, 4% is still, you know, millions of people probably. Uh, um, so yeah, I think it's really important that we 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 try and create that um, space for people to have a voice. Phil, I got to say, I'm so appreciative of the work that you do. I think there is something where it is very easy to kind of fall into your feels when it comes to any sort of spiritual conversation. And so your approach with like empirical information, you know, data and research it does do this thing where like those numbers, those numbers aren't going anywhere. And so you have the choice now to like see it for what it is. And especially for those of us who would kind of fall into that post-evangelical deconstruction space, like it is really helpful. Um, and it puts so much into context. And I think in a lot of ways, it adds a lot of solidarity. You talking about these big percentages makes, even as you were saying it, I was like, oh, thank God. I'm like, yeah, oh yeah, fuck yeah, that's great. Because then I do feel less alone. And I'm sure that a lot of these people who are interacting with you and seeing the work that you're kind of putting out there um, are doing the same thing, you know? So I'm just so thankful for the work that you do. I, I do want to be respectful of your time, Phil. I think we're coming up on time. Um, for those of the folks who, you know, want to connect with you, who want to engage with you, invite you on their shows and all those things, how can they do so? Best way to connect with me is Instagram. Uh, I left email a while back. Um, it's just too much. I got thousands of emails and I just hated it. And I, I, my ADHD just gets overwhelmed. But Instagram is kind of more 
texty. Do you know what I mean? It's quite easy to quick up, quick pick up and text. So send me a short text on Instagram, nothing long, uh, where you'll take weeks for me to get a reply. But Instagram's the best place. Phil Drysdale, I put out uh, snippets of our research on there. I put out memes. I chat with people in the DMs. If you need somewhere safe to talk with no judgment, no direction, just someone to listen and say, yeah, that's shit. And that's about all I'll say. Um, you can message me on there. Um, it's just Phil Drysdale, D-R-Y-S-D-A-L-E. I'm sure there'll be links in the show notes. Um, you can check out our research over at the deconstructionnetwork.com. Check out the research panel there. You can also check out the deconstructionnetwork.com if you're going through this process, you're lonely, you feel on your own. This could be a really lonely and painful and isolating uh, process. And the simple fact is it doesn't need to be. In fact, if you uh, could get into your like inner Jehovah Witness, I don't know if many of us have that, um, and just walk out your door, turn left or right, and start knocking on doors and go 10 doors. I bet you if you asked every door, hey, do you used to believe really passionately one thing and you've lost it all and you don't really know where you, what you believe anymore? I don't know if you get 10 doors before you probably found someone that has deconstructed their faith. Honestly, mm. they are everywhere. It's, it's In fact, it's the fastest growing spiritual movement in the America right now. There's more people deconstructing their faith than there are going into any faith in America. Um, it's it's off the charts how fast this kind of uh, shift is is moving. And so you don't need to be alone. Even if you're in the middle of nowhere, I guarantee there are people that are going through this. And so that's why I set up the deconstruction network because you, know, you can get on there, you can put in, put in a fake name if you're scared of someone hunting you out. We've never had any stories of pastors getting on there trying to hunt people and you can report anyone that sends you a weird message or anything, but get your name in, it puts a dot on the city and you can search you know, 50 mile radius and message people and say, hey, what's your story? Like, do you wanna go get a pint? And the thing is, again, I'll say this really clearly, Deconstruction is about moving away from a common space. It's not about believing the same thing. And so you're not going to find people that believe the same thing necessarily, but you're going to find people that have gone through the same thing. And I think that really is much more important. Um, so do check out everything I do is free. So it's all free resources. YouTube is like full of hundreds of videos. And there's some teachings on that of, of how to navigate deconstruction, how to tell people, loved ones about your deconstruction, how to help people that are going through deconstruction, lots of things like that as well. Um, yeah, it's just tons of shit everywhere i'm actually winding down i'm actually moving away from doing this because i'm having a kid like we talked at the beginning and yeah. like we, i think we mentioned at the beginning as well i don't make any money um <laughs> and you don't make money doing research it's not something that <laughs> raises money so I've, I've been living on poverty wage for about 15 years now and i'm kind of at the point where i just can't do it i, I need to start making an income huh. so i'm going to be stepping away from this and doing um just a full-time regular job in fact if anyone wants to hire me for something <laughs> You hear that, folks? Higher film. Um, but yeah, no, I, so I don't know how much longer I'll be putting out podcasts and resources and stuff like that. I'm hoping to still do the research on the side once I get established with a kid, with with um, a job. I'll probably try and do a couple of um, studies a, a year and put those out, but that'll be the where I focus. I think at the end of the day, we don't need another straight white guy on a podcast. We don't need another person on Instagram, but actually there's very few people doing this research. And so I, I'm hoping to kind of keep doing that and put that out there for people to use. And hopefully it's helpful, you know, for, you know, folks like you are on this podcast that you're talking about deconstruction, you can look at a thing and go, hey guys, I actually just saw the other day, actually 15% of people become atheists when they deconstruct. That's actually pretty low given that everyone says you just become an atheist and you stop believing <laughs> in God. That's actually not very true. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's helpful resources for people, hopefully to, to be able to say stuff like that. Um, wow. So yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Um, but yeah, Instagram is definitely where to go. It's a ramble and a half, but everything's a ramble with me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love it. And um, I, you know, even if you are dialing out of kind of this sort of work, it's still so important. And I'm really appreciative of it. And 
you know, I'd love to have you back on down the road if you're up to that, because I feel like yeah, we could just anytime. We, we can just keep on running and we have so much to talk about. So, Bill, thank you so much, man. I really do appreciate you. And this has been great. <sighs> it was great to talk to Phil. It was awesome. Phil, if you're listening to this, thank you for taking the, the time to speak with me. I would love to have you back on. And now that we know your story, I can bring you back on and then we can talk about, you know, whatever the fuck we want to talk about. It's going to be a great time. Some of my favorite things that Phil was naming was talking about safety, certainty, and security. And when he talked about, like, there is a kind of a flow in the evolving understanding of your own spirituality as you kind of grow through these different areas. And sometimes... Early on in your process, it's really important for you to have, you know, harsh, regimented uh, dogma, I guess, doctrine, I guess. It, it might have served you for a time, right? That's not to say it doesn't come with a shit ton of baggage that so many of us would probably have been better off without ever having experiencing, right? That's certainly, that, that's the truth. But um, when he was talking about, like, some people, they come out of certain spaces and they need, like or they, they find safety and security in a very religious, like a very hyper dogmatic religious space. And then they eventually kind of move out of that into something that's more progressive or more inclusive. And then from there kind of go wherever. Um, that was interesting to me. I think it's very easy for me on this side of my own faith change to just be like, fuck it. You know, there is no room. There's no space for anyone. To, like no one can get anything out of some of these systems. And like, that's totally fair if you feel that way. But I think it was interesting to hear, like, there are some situations where for a time, that might be what somebody needed. Um, and then as long as you understand that you have the agency and the freedom to move out of that to something that is entirely unique to you, then you can do that. Um, and so when Phil was talking about deconstruction not being a a tenant, not that, you know, there isn't some, you know, strict doctrine of adherence that if you consider yourself a, a deconstructed Christian or a person who was a Christian and has since deconstructed, like it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to anything. It's marked by what you're leaving. And that opens up so much freedom to explore whatever you want to explore or just let it go altogether and go to brunch. That's totally fine. I'm a big proponent of brunch. I love a mimosa. I love a beer mosa because I'm Gross like that. So yeah, uh, thank you, Phil, once again. That was a really, really cool conversation. We'd love to have you back. Well, 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 everyone, I think talking about drinks and brunch, you know, I think this leads right into everyone's favorite segment of the night. And this is one that I like to call Sip, Smoke, Read. Sip, Smoke, Sip, Smoke, Read. Hey. So you know we read that shit. Hey. shit. So I'm going to share with you all what I'm sipping, smoking, and reading. And uh, this is just my chance to just tell you. You are ca captive audiences. And I'm just going to share with you the stuff that I'm into. Uh, listen, I have started a new 
physical endeavor. I uh, had been had been working out for a while, and I kind of got into it. For those of you who know, I was like all gung ho about building my home gym, and I have since been successful in building that home gym. I have no interest or desire to go back to like a commercial gym. Um, that said, I had uh, the opportunity to take a CrossFit class. So I took a CrossFit class with um, some friends from work, uh, a woman from my work. She uh, goes to CrossFit and, and it was like this big, like team building exercise, like come on out to CrossFit. So I went to the CrossFit. It was fun, I think. <laughs> I think it was fun. But I will say I didn't, it wasn't like, oh my God, I need CrossFit in my life. Like it, it was fine, but it wasn't, I don't think it was really for me personally. Um, that said, there was something kind of interesting about, I, I, there was an excitement that I enjoyed going to a class on that day, not knowing exactly what you're going to be in for, but knowing you and a bunch of other people in that class are going to be faced with something, working on it together. And then you leave that thing feeling accomplished because you went in pretty relatively unprepared and then you kind of just did the workout and then, and then you left that much more uh, accomplished for it. And so I was like, man, maybe I should get into like some sort of fitness class or something. Um, cause I did find kind of some fun with it. And I realized I, my like cardiovascular conditioning was <laughs> absolute shit. And I was kind of like, you know, I would, that is not like for me personally, I don't really like to run, but I certainly see the value of having some cardiovascular exercise. So I was like, okay, what is something that I might possibly consider wanting to do? And I decided to take a self-defense class, like a martial arts class. I did uh, Taekwondo growing up in uh, middle school, a little bit in high school. I feel like every kid in the 90s did either karate or Taekwondo because <laughs> you wanted to be the Ninja Turtles or something. I don't know. Um, but I definitely was part of that. And um, so I, I was like, you know, let me just see. And so actually there is a uh, like a self-defense school, the, specifically the self-defense system is called Krav Maga. It's based, there's one here in Fort Lauderdale. And I took the class and I have loved it. So I've been doing it and I've been really enjoying it. So in addition, so I'll like work out a few days a week and then I'll go to Krav. And uh, it's just been really cool. I've, it's been a, a cool experience to um, do something that makes me feel embodied. That's been something that I find has been really important to me that in, in the summer months that I took off. Someone asked me, like, what have you been doing, you know, to like recalibrate and, you know, like what, what has been giving you a, a breath of fresh air? And for me, I think it was really important that I did things that required me to be in my body. And there's a million different ways people do that. Like you might want to dance or you might want to meditate or like make something with your hands or, or paint. any sort of like physical expression is part of that, I think. But for me, I was like, I wanted to do something that really grounded me into my physicality. Um, so doing this sort of exercise in a way that's like forces me to move my body in a mechanical way that everything is kind of working together to to do something that was actually really fun and really rewarding and really empowering um and as i was thinking about this i was thinking about what was it that stopped me from continuing on when i was doing martial arts and self-defense stuff in high school and overwhelmingly i didn't even have to think of it for two seconds i i, I knew exactly what it was when I was in high school and middle school, I 
was so self-conscious as an Asian kid. I was so self-conscious of being shoehorned into some Asian stereotype that I was determined to do anything I could to avoid anything that could be perceived as a stereotype. And so I remember like not wanting to get into martial arts because I simply did not want to be considered a some sort of quote like Asian stereotype. And when I look back at it now, I was like one, it was incredibly sad that I was doing so much to kind of like shun my own identity and self-expression that I was like literally stopping doing something that I was enjoying and good at for the sake of, you know, uh, homogenizing with like certain white spaces. Uh, you know, um, like I, I know for a fact, like if I had been doing Taekwondo when I was working at a Southern Baptist church, a predominantly white Southern Baptist church, I would have heard about that all the time. Like it would have been just a running gag because anything I did that was kind of, you know, like that showed my Filipino-ness, right? Or my Asian-ness that was like commented on, you know? And so in some weird way, I think coming back to this not only has been helpful to kind of my mental health and, and been helpful to uh, my own sense of physical embodiment, but um, doing something like martial arts has actually like forced me to come to terms with like um, letting go. And I think if I hadn't been at a place where I'm like really starting to, to love my Filipino-ness and love my Asian-ness, like, I don't think I ever would have even considered doing something like this. So all that to say, uh, picking up Krav has been illuminating in a bunch of different ways. And so I'm just really appreciative of it. I'm glad to, to be doing it. I know you all were like, hey, Adrian, uh, tell me about, <laughs> tell me all the reasons why uh, you have picked something up. But there it is. What else? What else? Okay, so I started watching. There's two new shows that I have been binging, watching. Uh, one is House of the Dragon um, on HBO. Alyssa and I started watching it. We were Game of Thrones fans. Uh, season eight was like kind of wonky. I know there are some people who love season eight. They thought it was fine. There are other people who like think it's cool to, to hate season eight, whatever, do you? Um, but all that to say, I was kind of tentative about House of the Dragon, but you know what? I think it's been good. I'm enjoying it. If you want to talk about it, slide into my DMs. We'll talk about it. Also, there is a new season of C. C is on Apple TV. It was with it is with Jason Momoa. Um, that's a show that I had been watching, and I'm really liking this new season. I think this is the last season. So after this, I think it's all over. But I've been really digging it. Other than that, oh, so this was kind of cool. Um, so the other day, a friend of mine turned forty, and I went to his birthday. Uh, he wanted to just have a little gal, like a, a hangout with some friends. And he said, there's two things I want to do. I want to go to a speakeasy in Fort Lauderdale. And then I want to go to an emo night. Um, by the way, if you're listening to this and you also listen to the September Patreon episode, you're like, Hey, Adrian, this is the exact same sip, smoke, read as the Patreon. Yes. Yes, it is. It's because I'm recording these two in a very similar time frame, and not a lot has happened in my life. This is important to me. So we went to this speakeasy. It's in Fort Lauderdale. It's like uh, it's like a liquor store. You go to the liquor store and you make a reservation. When you get to the liquor store, they just like find you and they they like let you in in like a closet, walk you through the storage area, and then in the back it opens up into a bar. And so it was a lot of fun. It was really cool. The drinks were really good. I had uh, one thing that the 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 person who's at the table was like, "Hey, you have to try the bone marrow." 
And I had never had bone marrow before. And it also sounds like a little kind of gross, like a little, you know, like bone marrow. Uh, but he brought it out and it was bone marrow that was like really like soft. And he brought out like a stack of garlic bread. And you basically would just like smear this like warm bone marrow concoction on some hot buttery garlic bread. And it was phenomenal. So good. Highly recommend. 10 out of 10 would do it again. And then after that, we went to emo night. And it was, <laughs> someone messaged me and they were like, an emo night at a bar is like, like the disco nights in the 90s that your parents used to go to, or like the 80s nights in the 2000s that like Gen Xers used to go to or something. And that's totally true. Um, it was absolutely just me, my friends, and just a sea of millennials just kind of reliving their senior year, singing to like Check Yes Juliet and like screaming Linkin Park and, uh, it, it was just singing like The Offspring and like Blink-182. It wasn't a true emo night for all the purists out there. It was more just like generic 2000s pop punk. Um, but it was a ton of fun. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think I would do that again. I think I'll do that again. And then as far as what I've been sipping, so I went out for a drink with a friend of mine and we went to a place where there was, uh, we get there and, and the, the woman goes, hey, it's actually Whiskey Wednesday. Oh, whiskey Wednesday. That's cool. I'm not really like a whiskey person. I'm not one to just sit down with like a whiskey neat and just like sip that. That doesn't really do anything for me. Um, but I do love a cocktail. And so I kind of asked her, like, is there any cocktails other than maybe like an old fashioned that you would suggest I try? And so she goes, you got to try. I make this really good whiskey blackberry smash and we use it with a whiskey called Buffalo Trace. I had never had Buffalo Trace. And if you're a whiskey person, you probably have some really firm opinion about it. Um, but I had it. I thought it was really good. Um, the Blackberry Smash was essentially Blackberry. I think there's some sort of simple syrup, probably like a little bit of lime. Um, and it was delicious. 10 out of 10, would do again. I think I'm gonna need to find a recipe and make one on my own. If you are out there and you're a cocktail fan and you're a whiskey fan, I would love to know some whiskey cocktails. I'm sure it, it is it, it is a, is ignorance on my part, you know, on my part. That is why I'm not drinking more whiskey. So once again, I would love some suggestions. I think that is it. I think we did it, y'all. I think we did it. As always, if you would like to connect, you can go to dirtyrottenchurchkids.com. Um, there is a Instagram handle, a Twitter handle, uh, a TikTok handle. Um, if you would like to pick up some merch to support the show, you can absolutely do that. That link is also on dirtyrottenchurchkids.com. If you would like to join the Patreon, we have access to a uh, patron-exclusive Discord server as well as monthly content. So I'll, I'll make a new episode every month. Um, and right now I'm, I'm on a kick where I'm interviewing some other bad apples within the Patreon community. So that's been super cool just to chat with them, get to know them and, and kind of hear their stories. And uh, it's been a ton of fun. I'm super grateful for everybody over there. Once again, thank you, Phil Drysdale. All of his information is going to be in the show notes. You will absolutely be able to connect with him. And I sure hope that you do. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast. Keep up the dirty work, everyone. And remember, it's all going to be okay. So much love and gratitude to Phil Drysdale for chatting with me this week. 
and a big thanks for the overwhelming support I have received from you bad apples as the show continues to grow and evolve. Couldn't do this without you. I've only ever said I love you to two men my entire life. Stone Cold Steve Austin, and a guy in a dark club who I mistook for Stone Cold Steve Austin. 1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.